0: Our Sunday school adult class has been involved in the study of the Pauline epistles and we are in the second book of 2nd Corinthians and in the 5th chapter and one of the things that I sought to underscore with reference to chapter 5 is that it does lay something of a clear basis of understanding of the persistence of the soul after death Paul does speak of a Away from the body reality, to be absent from the body, to be away from the body, is to be at home with the Lord. He does offer the hope that if this earthly house is destroyed, this body, this we have a building from God, a house made with hands eternal in the heavens. Well, ultimately, the hope of the believer is the resurrection of the body. That's not what Paul is speaking of here. He's speaking about the after-death experience. He's talked about the way in which the life of the apostle was subject to all manner of, of of hardships and of indignities and assailing his very life being under the threat of death persecution and he he speaks of that in the um, facing of those things though the outward man was being assailed they couldn't touch the inward man the inward man was being renewed day by day while we look not at the things that are seen but the things that are unseen so the world can do its worst to us, and they can only drive us closer to the Lord. And ultimately, the worst they can do is kill us, and if they kill us, that's still not a bad thing for the Christian, because we do go to be with the Lord in our existence of the what we call the persistence of the soul. Some people use the term the immortality of the soul. has come into some kind of uh, criticism because the immortality of the soul was taught by the Greeks. The Greeks believed in the persistence of the soul after death, but they believed that the body was nothing, that the body was simply the prison house of the soul. And the only part of our humanity that was important was this non-material existence. And many of them even taught, like I think Plato taught, uh, know that... Um, I believe uh, Aristotle taught it was picked up by one of the early church fathers Origen who taught the pre-existence of the soul that we were souls uh, prior to being put into our bodies and usually it was for some fault that uh, pre-existent souls were guilty of that we have this embodied state so not a very good view of the body I I wouldn't think Um, and yet the body is the creation of God And God is committed not only to um, preserve the body as long as we have life upon this earth, but even to raise the body from the dead at the last day. And so the problem with the Greeks wasn't that they taught that the soul had existence or that there was a spiritual aspect of our humanity that's not material. The Greeks were not materialists. They did believe in the soul. The problem was they didn't believe in the importance of the body. They just degraded it and they made it nothing. And that's certainly a departure from the biblical teaching. But um, in case you think, well, well, the soul, because of its uh, own nature, being uh, something that so adheres to our body, uh, that we think of it in terms of something that has such powers that it's immortal, and that was like, sort of like the Greek concept, our understanding of the immortality of the soul is that it, it rests in the hands of God. God brings it into his presence. It's not because of any strength or integrity, or value, or uh, virtue of the soul. It's, it's God that brings us into his presence. And, but the soul does continue on, this non-material existence. Now, there are ways in which uh, the historic way that the Church has uh, talked about these things. Uh, in the modern age, we look at some of the arguments that were made in the, by the Church Fathers, and we say, well, maybe the argument isn't all that strong. But that doesn't mean they missed the boat on the subject of the continuance of the soul after death. Because the body clearly teaches it. We looked last week at Jesus on the cross saying this day you will be with me in paradise. We looked at the souls under the altar who are martyred for the sake of the gospel. We see the book of Hebrews speaking about we've come unto the spirits of just men made perfect. Um, Clearly the Bible does teach the persistence of the soul after death. There is such a thing as a disembodied state. Um, and it really touches upon, but, but the, the way in which the church is taught it oftentimes was not absolutely correctly, precisely valid. So the people seize upon the weak arguments of the past and say, oh, there, there. It's, it's just not a doctrine of scripture at all. And one of the things they use is the fact that the, the, the Hebrew word for soul, the word nefesh, it means life. It means animate life. It means animate existence. Um, and in fact, the Bible in the creation account uses the term, the same terms, uh, "nephesh haya," which "chaya." Uh, it's the same word as "lachayim" from uh, further on the roof" to life, to life, "lachayim." Well, the word "nephesh chaya" is the word that means living soul, and uh, it says that Adam became a living soul. And so people think, well, that means he had spiritual existence. Well, no, he had animate existence. He lived in this world as a living being. Um, And the creatures that were made uh, from the sea, from the earth, when God said, let the sea swarm with the swarm of living creatures, that word is the same. It's nefesh chaya, living soul. So the fish are living souls although they don't have continued existence after death. They emerge from the sea. Nothing more went into their creation or their existence or their function, but they inhabit the sea and they're useful for the purposes of man to throw in the line, engaging in the sport of angling, or else pulling in the line and bringing in the fish and cooking it for his well-being. That's the function of the life of these sea creatures. Um, they're made certainly for the glory of God, but also, ultimately, once God gave permission for man to be eating the creatures of the, of, 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 of the field and of the sea, um, they're for man's good. They're for human consumption. And also, and there's no continued existence. We don't consume human life. Um, cannibalism. Man is different. He's in a completely different category than the fish of the sea. Also, the land animals. God said in Genesis chapter one, "Let the earth bring forth the nefesh chaya, the living creatures." And He made the land animals. He made the cattle. He made the bulls. And He made the um, the creatures that inhabit the land. And they're nefesh chaya, they're living creatures, and they came from the earth to go back to the earth and they have no continued existence because God simply gave the decree let the sea swarm with the swarms of living creatures let the earth bring forth living creatures. And so there's some sort of a process God used in which the earth itself, by his commandment, was capable of bringing it forth. I'm interested in just what scientists who believe in evolutionary um, science. Think about the, the, the advanced understanding of Genesis to think that the earth could find such potential. And again, the, if that's true, if the Bible's speaking about the earth having the potential, the only argument with science is how long did it take? How long did it take? But the earth has some potential to bring forth living creatures. The sea had some potential by the commandment of God. It's God commanding it. But he says, let the earth bring forth these creatures. Let the sea swarm with swarms of Nefesh Chaya. Let the earth bring forth Nefesh Chaya. These living creatures. They're all creatures of the animal kingdom with Nefesh Chaya. And yet they die and they go into the earth They return to the dust. They return to the earth from which they were taken or the sea from which they came into some existence by the commandment of God, by the creative power of God. And yet the earth having and the sea having these properties to bring these things forth, apparently, from the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 1. The man's in a different category altogether. He's Nefesh Laya, but look at the way in which he was made. Look at the way in which he was fashioned by his creator. Totally different function. Totally different way in which God made man to function in a completely different category than the fish of the sea or the animals that inhabit the land. Because God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals on the land. So man is made an image of God. He's made for dominion over The animal kingdom, they exist for him, his existence, his consumption. And then when the picture is given of the creation of the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden, what did God do? Well, there's an aspect of our humanity that does, like the animals, have a connection with the earth. He formed him, dust from the ground. And so there was this aspect of formation. Man was formed dust from the ground, or clay, (coughs) creatures who have a connection with the earth. God made us dust from ground. He formed us with his own hand forming them. And of course God didn't have a hand, but just that personal involvement of the creator in the creation of man differs. The nefesh hayah, from the sea and the land, he just gave a fiat. He gave a word of commandment. Let them bring forth from the land, from the sea. But God did a wholly different thing with the creation of man. Because man has a wholly different function. Man exists for a wholly different reason than the fish of the sea and the land animals. And then the other aspect is he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so there's formation and there's spiration. We know the word respiration, don't we? It's our ability to breathe. Well, spiration is simply the Latin word for breath or the Latin word also for soul. Spirit. Spirit comes from spiration. Because both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the same words are used for breath, and wind, and spirit. But it's God who, for his own breath, breathed into the nostrils of the man the breath of life. And as a result of both formation, dust from the ground, respiration from the breath of God, man became Nefesh hayah, living soul. In a completely different way, than the animals, and for a completely different purpose and function than the animals, and having an aspect of our humanity very similar to the animals in that the earth brings it forth in terms of dust from ground that God used in our formation, but something completely different than anything in an animal is the breath of God, inspiration from God, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and as a result of that, man became a living soul, which means we're not just living creatures. We're living creatures possessed of something of the, of the divine, something of the breath of God that made us living souls. So the book of Ecclesiastes says that when man dies, the body goes into the ground, uh, into the dust, and the spirit returns to the God who made it there's something persistent about the soul that continues about the the breath of God in the soul of man the aspect of what comes from the hand of the deity that makes us human, different from the animals with a different function and a different purpose and that continues on, the breath of God does not die the breath of God that he made to be resident in human beings does not die it continues on and of course you got the picture of the new creation in where Jesus breathes into his disciples the holy spirit receive ye the holy spirit. And so even in that regard there's something particular in the believer in which there is the life of the soul that is perpetuated because the spirit of God dwells in the believer. The body becomes the dwelling place of the holy spirit. We become temples of the holy spirit. And that's also, I think, a really good argument for continued existence. The soul that is in union with Christ, yes, the body's in union with Christ, but the body will be raised at the last day. That's why God doesn't leave the body to be entombed. But yet there's something in the human constitution, particularly the believer possessed of the Holy Spirit in union with Christ that continues on after death and goes uh, to be with God. Now that's uh, pivotal, I think, for our understanding of our humanity, what we call anthropology, and it's also pivotal for our understanding of our future, our eschatology, in terms of our hope beyond the grave, that the soul does go to be with Jesus, not waiting centuries until the resurrection comes, but there is existence of the soul to be with God. Now, none of this is Paul's concern. This is all our concern today. This is all stuff that gets debated in the church today, and sadly, believers divide over this. Um, And sadly, a lot of it is just the problem of an incomplete um, reading of the scriptures because of the pressure of um, the day in which we live where most of the philosophy that, that, that devolves upon our understanding of human nature has become very materialistic. And with the um, advancement of uh, the mapping of the human genome, um, so much of the understanding is that all of our activity can be explained by, the, by, 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 by brain activity, brain function. Everything is a product of brain function. Everything is a product of our chromosomes. It's all genetic. There's even a God gene, they contend, that exists that brings us into some awareness or existence of God, of God. Richard Dawkins, I believe, wrote a book called The God Delusion where he seizes upon that very idea. But that very idea is really contradicted. That's the, to me, that's the point of the argument with science today. Does man have a unique identity? And does science have an ability to determine that? To me, that's what science science has no ability to say anything about. It's like when I went uh, to I went to a gastroenterologist one time when I had this uh, very weird thing. You remember when I was in the hospital for eighteen days at an internal bleed, and none of the sci- none of the doctors can figure out where it came from, or how it started, or why it stopped. And um, I'm sitting across from a a gastroenterologist, head of gastroenterology down at Westchester Medical Center. And he's a Jewish man. Obviously, he had a skull cap on. And he was looking at my, uh, the pictures of um, the MRI. And he's talking to somebody uh, who's like a vein specialist. And uh, he's talking about the results of the MRI. And he looks up at me and he says, uh, he says it didn't happen. <laughs> Well, obviously it did. He's looking at the pictures. I'm looking at the pictures. This actually happened, um, and so I asked him, "Well, uh, how do I uh, know why this happened? Because uh, it may happen again." And he said to me, uh, "Questions about uh, ultimate meaning of what things mean—that's your job as a preacher, <laughs> as a scientist. I can only, or as a doctor, I can only tell you what happened. I can't tell you why." That's that's your ballywick. That's your area of expertise. And that's what's true, is that it's philosophers and theologians and teachers of the Word of God who have far, far more insight into the questions of why. Of course, those are the questions the Bible deals with. Um, and we try to make the Bible out as if it's more it's concerned about processes. We're concerned about... Um, when creation began and how creation took place rather than who created and why. Who and why are the really big questions that the scriptures uh, uh, emphasize and those are the things that we need to contend for that God is creator and God is creator who makes uh, human life for a a purpose uh, to function in uh, the way in which it is described in the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 yes
1: um, a two part question sure Um, could you touch on again if there's a difference between breath of man, our physical breath that's breathed in that, that that we experience in this body, physical breath, and uh, spirit or soul, could you touch on that distinction? And secondly, second part of of a question is: Could you touch upon um, Jesus on the cross when he breathed his last, maybe and? and Um, when he breathed his last and what what occurred then those two things
0: yeah he gave up the spirit yeah well I'd say this is that uh, the breath of life makes man an animate creature but man is an animate creature who has the breath that came directly from God it's not just the breath that the animals have which sustains their physical life the life that will die But there's another kind of life that man possesses, a life in connection with God. Man was made for that, was made to have union and communion with God. And so man is made with a capacity to know God, capacity to know himself, capacity to be self-aware, capacity to be creative, capacity to have memory. And ambitions and plans to the future. All these capacities that humanity has, we don't see replicated in the animals. At least not to the degree that humanity possesses it. And uh, I think that is all because of this union and communion that we have with God. So there's an aspect of our spiritual natures that clearly uh, is is in connection with, with God. So I think some people, the trichotomists will do this, and I think they're half right, not not totally right, is when a trichotomist takes um, the language of scripture that deals with soul on the one hand and spirit on the other hand, and they try to make that two different compartments. Uh, They usually will say, well, the soul is man's reason, the soul is man's um, consciousness, his ego is to use a psychological word, whereas the spirit—that's that's the God aspect. That's the thing that rises up to God, and, his, and in prayer we pray in, in the spirit. And The only problem with this is that the Bible seems to use these things interchangeably. Um, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now he uses the term "all that is within me." Bless His holy name. I think of the, the Mary's prayer, the um, Magnificat. Um, My spirit, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There's not two different components of her humanity that's uh, blessing and and, and then rejoicing. It's it's the inner life. These are all words that are speaking about the same reality, the same reality of the inner life. Uh, But again, when you speak of the inner life, you speak of the heart, you speak of the the mind, you speak of um, the strength. Um, So again, we're we're meant to be embodied creatures. So all this does relate to the body. It all does relate. The soul interacts in some way that we just don't know with the brain. But um, so all this is referring to the inner life. These are terminologies that are speaking of our identity. That's not just what appears to, to, I mean, we see one another in terms of our physical humanity and anything else we want to project to one another. Um, But there's a reality to us that's very deep uh, within our own heart and mind, within our own inner life, and particularly within within terms of our union and communion uh, with God that no man knows about. No one has any knowledge and understanding about until it becomes apparent. And I think that's, you know, I'm moving to that because that's what Paul's concern is in the Corinthian letter, is this whole matter of appearance. Um, Again, uh, man... Uh, judges by the outward appearance The Lord judges the heart uh, All things are naked and open Before the eyes of him with whom we have to do So God is the judge And the evaluator of the secrets of men Of the inner life And So this is language that speaks to the, that, that reality That inner life that's known before God And so it's more than just Respiration it's more than just our ability to intake and exhale air. It's something above and beyond that that has its, um, that, that, is, that is enabled to enter into union and communion with God. Um, and it's that aspect of our humanity that, along with its memories, along with um, just the rest of what makes us who we are, uh, apart from the body, that, that does have existence beyond the grave. It will continue on. And it will be with God. I don't know if I explained that well.
1: I have a, um, I have a different question that's uh, related to this, but I understand you use the two different Hebrew words for um, for living being, and then and then this spiritual birth from God, right? For human that the human that has a, a higher level of Um, Of, of living than just a creature that God gave us those distinction. Right, so I understand that because
0: of, and that's all because of the breath of God. That we're made differently, we're formed differently. We have a different function.
1: Okay, my second part of part of trying to understand this is: is there a distinction in maybe in the um, Greek? or in the, in the New Testament where Jesus says you must be born again to Nicodemus, is there any distinction in that language in the scriptures of born again, new birth, in relation to a birth from God in a different way? Or, or is it the same, same words?
0: Well, I think that's an aspect of the recreative work of God, restoring the soul to the original divine intention Because what happened at the fall is that the soul or spirit, the inner life, died or began to die. And that's another part of what I wanted to get into going back to the Genesis account. And may I just briefly do this, is that the whole matter of death didn't take place instantaneously. Again, you might think it would because the language language says in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you will die. So you might think that death would have been an instantaneous thing. But actually, death took place, not immediately, not the bodily life, uh, not the body formed from dust. That continued on for, uh, uh, Mike's not here to help me out, 900 years Adam lived, never long Adam lived, Uh, 900 years. So dying, he didn't die right away, but yet the sentence of death was upon him, and death took place in terms of that breath from God. That inner life that was meant to have again more than just respiration it was meant to walk with God it was meant to know God it was meant to um, run to- towards God and what happened after the fall is that man fled from God Men sought to, uh, Adam and Eve sought to hide themselves from the very presence of God and that is something to do with the death of the soul, that the spirit died, the spirit death in and of itself has this notion of separation so when death enters in there's a separation that takes place of um, the soul spirit entity and God there's a separation and and what the new birth does is is it recovers that the new birth is a birth of the spirit that brings us back to God that brings regeneration regeneration that brings a new life, which is really comparable to the restoration of the life that Adam and Eve once knew. Although it has an added dimension of uh, of the coming of Jesus into the world, a much fuller revelation of God. But it is the restoration of the from the death that took place as a result of sin entering into the world. Um, and so, you know, that new birth restores the soul, spirit with God. So that Jesus could say that he that dies, um, he, he that dies, um, I'm sorry, I'm the resurrection of the life. He, um, he that lives and believes in me will never die. That's one part of it. He that lives and believes in me will never die. Um, and you know, resurrection brings an aspect of our humanity to life again. To have a life with God that will never stop. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the new birth restores that aspect of our humanity that will ascend to God when we die. That will be in the presence of God when we die. Um, So I think that's the aspect of the new birth. The birth of the Spirit, the birth of the Holy Spirit upon the human spirit is that the human spirit is restored from its separation to now being in union once more with the God of Heaven through Christ. So I think that's what the new birth does. Yes? Uh, In our physical state, when Adam died, uh, Adam sinned, Uh, death came hundreds of years later, but um, his soul died right then. That's what I'm saying, yes. Yeah. There was the death of the inner life the inner life that once walked with God in the cool of the day wanted to walk with him no longer fled from him Uh, uh, that aspect of uh, they were naked and not ashamed now they need to cover themselves they are filled with shame Um, they're filled with a sense of dread and guilt in the presence of the living God then the man and the woman that walked with one another now accuse one another there's enmity between them And until God enters in and says, I'll put enmity between the serpent and the woman, does the promise of restoration begin? And the promise of restoration comes into its full fruition with the coming of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit, um, again, restoring us to God. But there is this element of separation, so that uh, when you think of bodily death, or you think of death, the the death of the body is one thing, but there's a separation that takes place. um, A death... And uh, James chapter 2 expresses what that separation is involving. James chapter 2. And and again, James is not talking about this stuff. He's talking about uh, faith without works. But he does give an illustration of what faith without works is like. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So death takes place when you separate the body from the spirit. Now there's a separation of the body and the spirit. There's not, well, the body died so the spirit died too. So it's all in the tomb. It's all been buried. No. The spirit lives, persists, just in a different place. No longer in the tent of the body that Paul says we're now in, but in that uh, eternal habitation given from God that he also speaks of. The soul continues to exist until the resurrection. But uh, again, my, my point was designed to be that as uh, death had the, this, um, this pattern of um, different stages, you know, the death of the soul followed by the death of the body, And then after death, there can be the separation eternally from the presence of God that uh, Revelation calls the second death. The spiritual death is the death of the body, and there's a second death. And the second death is eternal separation from the presence of God, the judgment of, of eternal damnation, of eternal separation from the Lord and from the presence of His glory. And just as that took place with respect to death, so with life. There is also the different stages. At conversion, at the new birth, the spirit's given life. The soul's given life. There's a reconnection of the person who is dead and trespasses and sins, so they become alive together with Christ. So there's more than just physical life, there's spiritual life that takes place through the power of the new birth. The Tom's asking all the right questions. Take me a while to get there. Yeah, that's the right question. What happens at the new birth is the soul comes to life. And then the... Yes?
1: Well, it's, it's helpful for me to remember that a while back you had kind of more defined what dying meant, that it doesn't mean an annihilation, that it means destroyed. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, if it did mean annihilation, then those that weren't reborn again would cease to exist, because they were, you know what I mean? Yes. So it's, it was good to remember that you define that. So yes. It's just It's It destroys our relationship. It doesn't wipe it
0: out. Right. That's the other part of the uh, argument from the people that argue for soul sleep, is the Bible says they're destroyed. But the Bible also says wineskins are destroyed. And they're not destroyed in terms of out of existence. They're just not capable of using being used for the purpose for which wineskins exist they're they're not capable t, uh, to function it's all so much of it is a question of functioning man is made to function to the glory of God to live to the glory of God to function in a life in of, of, of union and communion of worship um, of devotion of commitment of consecration to the Living God and and um, With with eternal death is that function cannot be realized. Man is separated from the presence of God eternally, and cannot draw near, cannot be consecrated, cannot enter into worship. He's excluded from the city. Um, Yeah, so that's the meaning of um, destruction in. And Paul uses the language of destruction in in the Corinth and Thessalonians away from his presence. You know, if you're destroyed, you think no, no longer do you exist at all. But no, it's destruction that takes place away from his presence. See, life is lived in the presence of God. Destruction is away from the presence of God. And so when God restores us through the gospel, when God recreates, he begins with the soul. The first thing that died lives. The soul died. The first thing in regeneration that lives is the soul. But the body is still subject to death. With Adam it was 900 years his body continued until he died. With us we'll live our 60, 70, 80, 90 years and our bodies will die. But our souls will be with the Lord because our souls are the first thing that lives. And our bodies await the general day of resurrection when Jesus will raise the dead. And so our soul and our body will be restored because we're meant to be soul-body entities. That's the design. We're not to be disembodied spirits. We're to be soul-bodies. Entities, living living creatures, animated creatures, animated by the a living spirit in living union in living connection with the living God. So anyway, that's how I think it works out in terms of the big picture of of biblical theology. None of this is Paul's concern in the book of Corinthians, but I think it's helpful to just uh, be reminded of this. of uh, you know, the entrance of death into the world and how it affected humanity and the ultimate separation from the presence of God in the second death and, and how life begins with life of the soul. Life that's renewed in the inner man and then the body's raised and then there's eternal life um, in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness was. Oh, no, one other thing, the soul goes to be with God after death. Anyway, so we have about 10 minutes left. Any other questions about this? Or Yes, please.
1: Um, there's probably nothing in Scripture to answer this that I. Never mind. Pretend I didn't see that.
0: <laughs> You'd be surprised with Scripture answers that we don't have a clue. <laughs> um, so, our souls, our living souls, will be in the presence of the Lord at our bodily,
1: physical death. Where are the souls of those that are not with the Lord at that time waiting for resurrection?
0: Oh, they're hanging around with the rich man. <laughs> <laughs> they're hanging around with the rich man. <laughs> um, yeah, they're in a provisional place of... Uh, well, the rich man, it says torment. Yeah. It says torment. That there is a constant, continual existence of the soul until the resurrection. And then God will raise the dead, raise the bodies of the, of the dead. But you know, my conception of the, the state of the dead after death is not the torture chamber or all the degrees of torture that you read about in Dante. And I, I, I've not read Dante, but others have, and I know there's all kinds of levels of hell that he speaks of um, but i think the first sign that meets you on the way to hell is uh, all who enter here despair of hope there's no there's no hope any longer and um, i think that's an aspect of the reality the reality of separation from god you know again you have i think what the bible's doing is the bible's using metaphors it's not actually saying well here's a snapshot of what hell looks like it's give, and preachers say they've been to hell and they've been to heaven I think the Bible just gives us pictures and the reality will be what the reality will be when we get there but one thing's clear the major theme of it is, is the presence of God that the, um, the righteous will see God well, however that will be I think we'll see God in Christ um, because again God is invisible But Moses saw him who was invisible. How did he see him? He saw him by faith. But there will be a side aspect. And the side aspect will be that the Lamb will be present in the city. In Revelation chapter 20. Jesus will be present. And so we will see him. We will see him as he is. And we will be like him. And our conformity is said to be conformed to the image of God's Son. So we will be perfect image bearers of the perfect Son we who are sons of, and daughters of God by grace. And so we will enter into that in terms of our perfected souls, the spirits of just men made perfect, and then there will be the resurrection of the body, where our perfect souls will be joined to our resurrection bodies, which are transformed. In Hebrews, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of its being sown a physical body, raised a spiritual body, Uh, sown a mortal body, raised an immortal body Um, sown a body of corruption raised a body of incorruption so we will be changed there will be a transformation of the body and Jesus is the example of that transformed body a body that uh, those who knew him didn't know him Mary thought he was the gardener how does that happen? she did not recognize her Lord she thought him to be the gardener well, there's some aspect of the resurrection body that uh, either Jesus didn't allow her to see, it was him, or uh, I don't know. And then there was also the way in which his body seemed to appear. didn't walk through doors. Doors were locked in the upper room, and he was with them. He appeared. So there'll be properties that our bodies, the resurrection body, possesses that I'm certain the resurrection body we will possess. will be fashioned like unto his own glorious body. Philippians 3 and verse 20. So perfect souls will have resurrection bodies and the soul of the, of, of the, of the damned will have uh, souls that continue on also in resurrection bodies. And that, you know, he asks, he asks the question, why, did, why does God do that? Why does God raise the body of the dead only to, um, only to enter into spiritual and physical despair? Well, it's because in the body we either serve or don't serve God it's in the body that we worship and obey him or we don't worship him and disobey him so it's in the body rebellion was carried out and it's in the body that punishment will be given so soul and body will be raised to exist eternally where I have no clue I know God has his new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells where did the the dam go Again, when, when Scripture speaks of eschatology, it's, it's sparing in its descriptions. It gives us enough that's needed to spark hope and confidence and joy and fear, all those things in the prospect of the things that will be, but doesn't answer all of, all of our questions. It doesn't uh, scratch every point of our curiosity some of the things are part of the secret things known unto the Lord our God, and those things that are revealed to us belong to us and more will be revealed to us when we get to be with him, but not everything. there'll be things that we'll never have any full knowledge of uh, because again we're not God. Um, yeah I just wanted to briefly go back to the Corinthian passage as we conclude and I realize this is just concluding. yes, Tim you just want to say, you know, it, a lot of sense. I want to say it doesn't
1: matter, but I mean, the reality is that we'll be with the Lord, I and mean, that's really enough for us to to know that everything else will be perfect. You know. I
0: mean, yes. Yes. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's the essence of it. That that we we will be with the Lord, but you know the other part is not inconsequential. That we will inhabit a new creation, a new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness dwells. That so we will do that not just in our spiritual. Uh, um, in in our inner life, but as as soul body entities, because the point of it is that all it all matters. Creation matters. The body matters. Um, God's original design for the world matters. Um, it should matter to us today. We just you know, we just can't be interior in our outlook. I mean, the problem is, you have some Christians that are not interior at all. <laughs> They're never looking within, examining their hearts, doing anything the scripture tells us we're to be doing. Um, but there's other Christians, that's all they do. That's all they do. And they never go across the, the street to minister to the people who may be impoverished and in need, or minister to people that need the gospel. They're just uh, interior Christians growing by leaps and bounds within their own hearts and minds. So there's a balance to the whole view. Uh, So we should respect uh, the whole of creation and God's restoration of the whole of creation. Because that's what God will do. Not just restore our relationship, but restore the very world to its proper order. To where the faithless city becomes the faithful city. Where all the injustices and oppressions and um, of this life uh, will give um, will give way to a perfected city of perfect justice and perfect truth and perfect love. Um, but that's what we're heading towards. So that's what we should be seeking to realize in our relations with other people. That. Uh, love is important and justice is important and truth is important. All the things that are characteristic of the new heavens and new earth should be important to us now because we have a down payment of the spirit, of of that inheritance that that brings those things uh, to importance in our lives today. So anyway, uh, God willing, we'll take some of these things and go back to the Corinthian passage and see how Paul uh, works it out with respect to uh, not only the disembodied spirit that will be with God, but also the resurrection and also um, the judgment and also ultimately the new creation. He gets to the new creation in chapter 5 and verse 17. If any man be in Christ, behold a new creation. So Paul's going to move in some of these directions we've just hinted at uh, this morning. Um, but uh, thank you for your questions. I hope it's been profitable. I don't know that I've answered everything exactly as I maybe could have but I hope it's been helpful let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer Father we're thankful we can uh, think upon these things we can consider uh, the major pivots of scripture that announce these things to us and uh, we pray that these matters of, of your purposes for humanity and creation would would be something that we would never lose sight of. That We're just not made to function in this world like the beasts. We're made to function in this world as a people who know you and fear you and honor you and serve you and worship you and, and hold communion with you and have our lives bound up with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Uh, help us to see that that's what's been restored to us by the grace of the gospel, that that reality is not something that is just going to meet us when we get to glory. It's something that meets us today. And we pray that we would live as living saints, as those whose souls have been redeemed, whose hearts and minds have been renewed, whose inner life has been refashioned, so that we truly are now in this life, at this hour, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so we ask you to help us to live as such. Help us to live in the light of um, what you've done for us, what you continue to do for us, and what blessings will culminate to us when Christ returns in glory. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to be with us as we greet one another, as we fellowship with one another, and as we enter into the morning hour of worship. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.